At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. What dignifies the yogic practices is that the belief system itself is not truly religious. There is no Buddhist God, per se. It is the self, the individual mind, that contains immortality and ultimate truth. What the hell is not religious about that? You've simply replaced God with the original self. Yes, but we've localized it, at least to know where the self is. It's in our own minds. It's a form of human energy. Our atoms are six billion years old. We've got six billion years of memory in our minds. Memory is energy. It doesn't disappear. It's still in there. That's a physiological pathway to our earlier consciousnesses. There has to be, and I'm telling you, it's in the goddamn limit. Just you're a wacko. What's wacko about it, Mason? I'm a man in search of his true self. How archetypically American can you get? <laughs> Everybody's looking for their true selves. We're all trying to fulfill ourselves. Understand ourselves. Get in touch with ourselves. Face the reality of ourselves. Explore ourselves. Expand ourselves. Ever since we dispensed with God, we've got nothing but ourselves to explain this meaningless horror of life. You're wacko. Well, I think that that true self, that original self, that first self, is a real, mensurate, quantifiable thing, tangible and incarnate. <laughs> and I'm going to find the fucker. From the classic film, Altered States, and a classic rant by William Hurt, Finding the Authentic and Primordial Self, Going Within, which always entails going back to a primeval time of starships and cosmic wonder, Dispensing with God, the Demiurge, to have the space to encounter the vastness of who we really are, which encompasses billions of years and the Sophia of our ancestors. We of the broken places know this is true, attainable, that it's both scientific and mystic. We've always known, and now we're on that odyssey. The same journey those spiritual off-worlders of ancient Alexandria took. The Egyptian mystics, the Gnostics, the Hermeticists, and, yes, the Neoplatonists. Our topic in this eternal now with a double feature picture show in the back row of the Kenoma. We all have our journeys to make. I will see you on the other side. These spiritual off-worlders knew that the distance and voyage to the stars and the distance and voyage to our indwelling divine spark was the same. The above and below of Hermes speaking through Apollonius of Tyana. They knew, you know, and there is nothing like this quest as we languish in Mithra's abode. The fabric of the universe is far from perfect. It was a bit of a botched job, you see. We only had seven days to make it. The world affirming you knew of a better reality after his near-death experience 
granted him a view of the eternal realm. As he wrote, It is impossible to convey the beauty and intensity of emotion during those visions. They were the most tremendous things I have ever experienced. And what a contrast the day was. I was tormented and on edge. Everything irritated me. Everything was too material, too crude and clumsy. Terribly limited both spatially and spiritually. It was all an imprisonment for reasons impossible to divine. And yet it had a kind of hypnotic power, a cogency, as if it were reality itself. For all that I had clearly perceived its emptiness. Although my belief in the world returned to me, I have never since entirely freed myself of the impression that this life is a segment of existence which is enacted in a three-dimensional box-like universe especially set up for it. This isn't a world that anyone with any sense stays in. The things you care about are useless where we're going. You knew this was a shitty software simulation. There is something higher, something we can experience and bring back to heal us, to share with others, the least of our brothers. And thus, here at Aeon Bite, with your host Miguel Connor, we continue to tap into the eldritch tech of those spiritual off-worlders of ancient Alexandria here at the Virtual Alexandria. Welcome, welcome you veterans of a thousand psychic wars and you Johnny Cash Bodhisattvas. It's time we found out who we are and what reality is not. As dream time returns and civilization collapses, as so many fluid apocalypses happen in the desert of the real, you are better equipped than meat sacks in navigating this age of Hermes, this Philip K. Dick world, these fucking Gnostic times. But like every one of the super states that preceded it, it has one iron rule. Logic is an enemy and truth is a menace. My dad said the two-party system works. Well, Ernie, that's because your dad is a whore for the establishment. You'll get plenty of that eldritch tech on this episode, with two fantastic guests that know their Neoplatonism and theurgy. Why two guests? Our show on understanding the Gnostic heresy with David Brackey and Earl Fontanelle was the highest listened episode this year so far. People really like the double booking. Thus, first we'll have John Edgecombe discussing his book, Becoming Aeon. John will reveal the mystical beauty of the concept of the One, and how Plotinus was able to experience it, and how you can experience it, and other cool concepts. Afterward, we'll host Dr. Jeffrey Kupperman, who will discuss his new book, A Theurgist Book of Hours. Ready yourself for usable and effective rituals and meditations 
from the Neoplatonic tradition, as well as an understanding of the theology and history of Neoplatonism. Heresy shouldn't be this much fun, but it is, it just is. Especially when we have the means to find our authentic, divine self in this terra damnata. Ernest Hemingway once wrote, The world is a fine place and worth fighting for. I agree with the second part. I mean, things are getting worse here, wouldn't you agree? Yaldi Baldi and his angels really have dialed up the crazy and we shining crazy diamonds are getting hammered. Furthermore, the meat sacks are collapsing into a Borg-like mass, a Cronenberg of doublespeak eager for jackboot curb kicks. Bringing in Jung again, he did say, no doubts can exist in the herd. The bigger the crowd, the better the truth and the greater the catastrophe. But has it ever occurred to you, Wally, that the process that creates this boredom that we see in the world now may very well be a self-perpetuating, unconscious form of brainwashing created by a world totalitarian government based on money? And it's not just a question of individual survival, Wally, but that somebody who's bored is asleep and somebody who's asleep will not say no? It was Lao Tzu who said the more laws we pass, the more outlaws we create. And as the Chinese proverb goes, laws are useless when men are pure, unenforceable when men are corrupt. There are of course those who do not want us to speak. Where there is fire, we will carry gasoline. We are drowning in laws, in misinformation, in mass media gaslighting. We can't trust the rulers of this age. It reminds me of that old Jewish story where the Demiurge wants to bully a righteous rabbi. He can't, though, because the rabbi has memorized all the names of the angels. By cosmic law, he was off limits. Guess what the Almighty did? He simply changed the names of the angels and then tormented the rabbi. Let me give you a little inside information about God. He sets the rules in opposition. It's the goof of all time. Look, but don't touch. And while you're jumping from one foot to the next, what is he doing? He's laughing his sick fucking ass off. He's a tight ass. He's a sadist. That's the world we live in. Ruled by that grifting wickedness in high places eternally moving the reality goalposts. But hey, all history is a Gnostic revelation. Some have speculated Atlantis began as a rebellion against Olympus. The first version of the Matrix is the greatest allegory in all philosophy, Plato's cave. Perhaps the most famous ancient myth is Prometheus, where the Titan and Athena, <coughs> Sophia, steal fire, <coughs> Gnosis, from the gods for the humans. The greatest epic ever is arguably Homer's Odyssey, which is about Ellen, a cipher for the soul or Sophia, being stolen away to an alien realm. 
And in truth, the Odyssey is not about love. But as Zoo says himself in the tale, it's about eugenics. The world had become too populated with humans, and that threatened Olympus. Nothing has changed since. Your very breath is a gift from Olympus. You have insulted powers beyond your comprehension. Somebody created man. You don't know much about us. I could go on and on, and I have on Aeon Bite, but you're getting it. And you're getting that it's time to cast the Demiurge aside, as in the film, Altered States, and find our original, authentic self. It's the only way to win this game of Saturn. It's the only way. As Socrates famously said, the unexamined life is not worth living. Who am I? That's the real question, isn't it? Who, who am I? Who are you? What other questions are there? What other questions are there, really? If you, you want to understand the universe, embrace the universe. The, the door to the universe is you. I know you'll find the means here at Aeon Byte, and I truly appreciate your company and continual support. This is my main gig now, as Dreamtime returns. So please consider supporting this Red Pill Cafeteria if you haven't. Consider my voiceover services if you need an audiobook, game, podcast, documentary, or commercial narration. Don't forget to assist others in the alternative media. Don't forget that you are higher than the gods, that you are eternal. Let us to our double feature picture show with John Edgecombe and Jeffrey Kupperman. Finn, do you remember? Oh. Yeah, I, I think so. A long time ago, I was you, sort of. And I crashed on Earth and became a butterfly or some biz. And I guess it was just some random absurd thing. Just a joke I've been playing out for centuries. Who's creating the joke? Are you? And if so, then are you my creator? Uh, maybe? I don't know. Probably not. Probably not, but who knows? I've been around forever and experienced so much impossible junk. I've embodied all that is good and evil. And now we're here. It's unprecedented. And I give you a choice. Come with me to the end and the beginning or struggle here a while like a beautiful autumn leaf. What's that bell sound? Cool, man. This is your crisis as you stand on the edge of freedom from love, hate, friendship, isolation, jealousy, secrets, violence, video games. How long are you gonna list stuff? It's a long list. You're telling me to abandon all this stuff, but you're not really making it sound bad. It's not bad. I'm just giving you the choice of a new mode of existence. I feel like I put a lot of work into this meat reality. I'd like to see it through. Fair enough. Prepare to discorporate. Goodbye, son! This is the Aeon Byte interview. And with us, we have the pleasure of being joined by John Edgecombe to discuss his book, Becoming Aeon. Adventures in Political and Mystical Philosophy. John, thank you very much for coming on the show. I appreciate the invitation. Thanks for getting back to me, Miguel. 
Oh, pleasure is all ours. I enjoyed your book. It took me to some great places in a sort of a, a short time, but uh, it was really a good read. I think uh, there's so much for everybody, and it's amazing how you're able to to cover so much ground in so little time. I was looking at your book, even the the last part where you do this very short, brief history of mysticism. It's really amazing because you really just cover the history of mysticism without uh miss without missing anything you go from the i mean you you include confucius aristotle plato uh marcus aurelius you cover the gnostics kabbalah you cover rumi it's just a shankara so good job at the end i would tell the audience uh just for that you should uh take it out it's a billion times better than wikipedia but it's also a good short read but we'll get to this too i just i wanted to share this with the audience but with us too we have somebody who is always well probably already an aeon not becoming an aeon and that's the moondog vance vance how are you doing oh pretty good working on my aeonic skills as always um, even though I have a lot on my Platonism, <laughs> there's always roomy for more. <laughs> I always tell myself, I am not going to laugh at one of your puns, and then I, I can't help it. They're funny. <laughs> or maybe they're not funny, <laughs> and that's why I laugh. Because <laughs> One way or the other, either painful or funny, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Or both. Or both, but either way, I laugh, and that's a good thing. Well, John, um, I uh, noticed in your book towards the end, you talk about your own awakening experience and i thought it was interesting because it was in 2006 and that was sort of my year of my abraxas experience and really getting into gnosticism so that was an interesting sync do you want to share with the audience about that briefly yes absolutely um um this this experience i had in 2006 is what got me interested in mysticism i uh, went to florida Fort Lauderdale, Florida, for a leadership conference there. And uh, my mystical experience had nothing to do with the actual content of the leadership conference. It was in uh, uh, forensics. But um, what the mystical experience that happened there is much more important. Um, uh, it's sort of a process of traveling that didn't happen all there. It happened, uh, it sort of culminated in. Uh, Reno, Nevada, once I got back from uh, Florida, where I live. Um, well, what I was very excited about this leadership conference. I had a lot of energy rushing through me. Um, I sort of tried to discipline my body more when I was there. I was careful with what I ate. I tried to eat very healthy uh, foods, and uh, I sort of stood up straight a lot of the time. Um, Sort of disciplining my body, sort of um, trying to com control the flesh, um, trying to focus my mind more, um, trying to control my thoughts, which is actually uh, much harder uh, than it sounds. Um, um, and I think the same, the mystics uh, had the same sort of disciplinary uh, method, and I, and uh, but I didn't know anything about mysticism. At the time I had, I went to this conference. Um, it was only later after I got back, um, and uh, um, after I had the experience and it left me, that I uh, found a book. I found uh, Aldous Huxley's Perennial Philosophy, 
And uh, I read that and um, throughout it, he talks a lot about mysticism in it. And um, I noticed that his descriptions of the mystics within it were very similar uh, to the experiences that I just had in Florida and then back in Dorino. And this experience was the most um, sublime, the most uh, awe-inspiring thing I've ever experienced in uh, my life. And uh, so that's what really got me interested in mysticism. Um, if I if I didn't have this experience, um, then I probably wouldn't um, uh, I wouldn't uh, consider mysticism valid or credible at all. It's because and that's that's one problem with mysticism, is that. Uh, it's uh, valid to the person who has the experience, but it's impossible logically to prove to right. other people that um, they've actually had that this uh, experience is real because they've never had an, an experience like it. Um, and uh, Arthur Schopenhauer talks about that. He says the mystic fails to convince, um, but philosophy with reason um, is much more convincing to most people, which is, uh, why it's a subject of study which with more uh, credibility than mysticism. Um, so yeah, that's, uh, um, that's where my uh, uh, interest in mysticism started. Awesome. Awesome. And you were young too. I mean, you started out pretty young. Yeah, I was 16 years old wow. uh, in 2006. And um, yeah, it, maybe it was an adolescent uh, awakening of sorts, but uh, yeah, that's, that's when I had my mystical experience. Yeah. And it taught you a lot because uh, you go into detail about what you did. Like you said, you, you learn discipline, non-attachment, observation, contemplation, and through all throughout your book, you seem to hit on this. I mean, one of the ways to become a mystic is to lead a moral life. And you quote, Kant, who says that, and then you quote Schopenhauer believes in asceticism because, yes. you know, the surly guy who said that God is the negation of existence. Uh, but you keep going in this uh, idea. And of course, we can talk about Plotinus because Plotinus stood before the one, you know, what a rarity. But at the same time, it's not like he left a manual of rituals, like do this and this and this, and you'll go beyond the world of uh, yeah. ideas. But he lived the life of a philosopher, non-attachment, contemplation, having virtue. So you would say that is the central role, you would say, or a very important role of a mystic is just to be a moral, virtuous person who is not attached to the illusions of life, the temporality of life, perhaps? Yes, uh, absolutely. Uh, um, some people would say once one has the, such a mystical experience that one never, one's never the same afterwards as life has changed. Once you've um, had a comprehension or an experience of union with God or uh, the one, um, you're changed forever. Um, there's a passage in the Bible that says something like, uh, the one who sees God... Um, will never um will forever be changed or one no one can look at the one who looks at god will not look and uh, live and uh i i interpret that figuratively as one who has a a, a a mental experience of god will forever be changed and his past life will uh and past personality will no longer be there yeah that makes sense because uh, people are always looking for 
Well, there's a lot of people who are seekers. Do you think anybody can become a mystic or just a few? What's your what's your thoughts on this? I think um, for most people with the current lifestyles they live, uh, um, they cannot. I think in the modern <laughs> I, I think in the modern world, it's become harder to um, become a mystic um, because of uh, there are so many creature comforts and attachments to the body uh, now that uh, have to be overcome. Um, however, in uh, William James's book, our collection of lectures, The Varieties of Religious Experience, he does uh, give many examples of people who do have spiritual experiences of mysticism and union with God in, around the time he was around, which was the early 20th century. Um, so it may be much more common than we think. They're just these account, these uh, accounts are never written down or recorded. Oh, yeah, for sure, for sure. Well, let's talk about the one. And I love talking about this. I mean, there's something about, I mean, your book, again, covers so much ground, the history of mysticism, the approaches, the different figures and so forth. But obviously, there's a concentration on Plotinus and that uh, that idea of the one, which, of course, came from the pre-Socratics. And Plotinus was just uh, doing commentary on Plato. But what I love, when I read Plotinus, I get teary-eyed because it's just beautiful. Uh, there's something about him that just stirs something within my soul. And what I love about people talking about the one is that it's like Gnostic cosmology. Yeah, you can read it, but 10 people can describe it and you get like 10 wonderful interpretations. I and mean, these works are, in a way, they're, they're living and they're charged by the people who interpret them. So, yeah, I know I'm, I'm talking a lot, but uh, yeah, let's talk about the one and let me know where you want to start. I mean, many questions your book answers is how can something come from nothing? Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, Plotinus is probably my uh, biggest interest in, in the figures of philosophy. Um, I'll, uh, I'll begin with um, where this uh, concept of the one um, first started or some of the earliest uh, sources we have about the one. And um, this idea of the one um, it first originated uh, with uh, this pre-Socratic philosopher um, named Parmenides, um, lived about uh, 475 BCE. Um, he was a uh, Eleatic. He, he was from the Eleatic school um, in uh, Italy, which was then a Greek colony. Um, he first proposed his uh, philosophy of the one, um, that uh, the one is all there really is. The one is all that exists. Um, everything else that we experience in the material world is really an illusion that... Um, in a sense, all existence is a giant silver sphere that um, there's this this one and it's perfect. And um, the illusions of materiality that is, uh, is just an illusion of the one is behind this um, illusion that we experience um, is one of his disciples named Zeno said uh, there really is no motion. Um, and he gives a logical argument for that. But um, yeah, they don't, they don't give any uh, credibility to um, empirical experience. Um, what we perceive and experience in the material world is an illusion, so we can't really trust it. Um, Parmenides' teacher, uh, Xenophanes, said uh, that God is the one. Um, 
if we believe what we read in uh, Aristotle's metaphysics uh, of what Xenophysius says. So this concept of the one is uh, very similar to the concept of, uh, of God, of the supreme being. It's also very similar to um, the Hindu conception of Brahma, that um, the, the world is Maya, the world is illusion, in that um, Brahma is the supreme reality. So it's a, it is a pantheistic concept of existence that everything is really God. And um, but yeah, so that, and also Plato has a dialogue, the Parmenides, about the one and the many, which is uh, full of uh, contradictions. Um, but um, it tries to describe a, the relationship between the one and the many. So what exactly is the one and the many? Um, well, I'll begin with the many first, because it's easier to find to define the many than the one. Uh, the many is simply uh, means all the particular things um, we experience in the material world, um, particular particularity, um, contingencies, um, the ever-changing flux of the material world. And uh, then there's the one, then this is a perfect concept, an unchanging concept. Many would say it's an ineffable concept. You really can't explain it in words um, because it transcends language and it transcends duality. Um, and it's a perfect concept. Um, so that's uh, one of the earliest uh, conceptions we have about uh, the one. Now, but Plotinus, um, around 600 years later, uses the same term, the one, and it has many of the same features um, and attributes. Uh, so uh, Plotinus, he was a Neoplatonic philosopher. He lived about uh, 205 AD to 270 uh, AD. Um, not much is known about his life. Uh, he was born in Egypt and he ended up in Alexandria to study philosophy in his 20s. Um, he uh, was looking for a teacher he liked and he found one in a guy named Ammonius Saccas, um, who he probably got his platonic ideas from. Um, now, I've read the Neids once. Um, reading the Aeneids is a lot like reading uh, Aristotle, a commentary on Aristotle's categories. Um, Aristotle was very influential all throughout the Middle Ages, and uh, reading the Aeneids is like is just like reading a commentary on it. It talks a lot about um, Aristotelian categories. Um, it's actually, it's very cut and dry and rigid um, because, you know, Plotinus actually never really wrote anything. Uh, the Aeneids are a collection of lectures and notes that his student periphery uh, gathered um, to form um, the doctrines of Plotinus. Uh, uh, Plotinus would say himself that uh, uh, this knowledge does have to, should be uh, kept secret, and it's uh, really somewhat uh, superlative or uh, um, contingent to write about it because uh, the mystical experience can't really be um, communicated in language. You have to experience it yourself to really uh, understand the full story. Um, so the basic uh, philosophy of Plotinus and Neoplatonism um, uh, could be uh, illustrated in terms of a circle where we have this uh, one, the one, the supreme principle, the ultimate principle um, as a dot in the center of the circle. And um, 
from this supreme principle, which is also the source and creation of everything, um, emanates um, first uh, the spiritual um, realm and then uh, the material world um, in these in three basic stages of the material world, the spiritual realm, and uh, the one at, at the top. And so these emanations emanate from the, the this dot in the center of the circle, the one outwards, and that is creation. Um, it could um, it could be asked, well, how does this one exist in the first place? Uh, why is there something rather than nothing at all? Um, and I sort of have a argument uh, regarding that. Um, I, I start out, well, first of all, um, there's nothing because, um, you know, you can't have anything unless um, if there's nothing to cause anything to happen. So um, first there's nothing and this concept of nothing, um, it has to be, it is a, it is a dual concept that there's nothing. If there is nothing, then doesn't that imply that there is something to compare the nothing to? <laughs> yeah. Because, um, nothing implies there's something and if something implies that there's nothing. And, um, uh, this is an argument for crea creatio ex nihilo, creation out of nothing, that um, something necessarily came out of nothing because um, nothing always implies something. There can be no nothing unless there is something. Um, and uh, this is what started creation, I think, um, out of this logical necessity that something must be must exist in order for nothing to exist and then uh, this this something gradually um changed and evolved into its various forms and matter um also um this also was what gave birth birth to time that uh i have a my definition for time is that time is motion in space without any motion there would be no time and in order for there to be motion, there have to be things that exist that are moving in motion. Um, yeah, I love that part of your book. It's, it's, it was amazing. Thank you. Um, and because of this, we're stuck in time. We're always stuck in motion. Everything's constantly moving. Um, if everything uh, stopped, then there would be no time. If there's no motion, there's no time. Everything would stop. Um, and I think in the mystical experience, we transcend time. We look, we learn to look at things in a timeless, um, in a timeless view. Um, I think this is this is a point of that passage in uh, the book of the Gospel of John that um, whoever um, believes in Jesus Christ uh, shall not die, shall have eternal life. I think that's a uh, figurative interpretation of the mystical experience that once you um, transcend time and you have this mystical experience, you're, you're, you've transcended time and are now living in an eternity. You're experiencing eternity and timeless, which is really timelessness, no time. Mm, yeah, I love what you're saying. It makes perfect sense because these... From the Gnostics to the Greeks, they're saying, still yourself, stop, be silent. So 
like you said, if we can still our mind, our mind, our thoughts are not in motion, we can go into an altered state, a timeless state, right? Yes. Yeah. And uh, in the mystical experience, it uh, transcends time. Um, you look at, you get beyond time. We're all stuck in time. We're stuck in eternity. I mean, um, they, in uh, Zoroastrianism, it has somewhat uh, two concepts of time that, and actually it says uh, the devil or Uramuzda has dominion over, uh, over regular time that we're all stuck in time, um, stuck in an illusory a sense of time, which is just motion in space. And uh, we have to uh, transcend that. Or mm. Augustine sort of said um, the same thing that time is an illusion. Yeah, in your book, you said he he said, "Well, yesterday already happened, so it doesn't exist. Tomorrow hasn't happened, so it doesn't exist." So he said, "Well, then we got to be always in the now. <laughs> That's the one real place, right?" Yeah, we're always in the now. Uh, it's an eternal presence, um, but that yeah, that's Augustine's argument for it. Um, so, um, and this, uh, according to Neoplatonism and these other philosophers, uh, the one is the only true reality. Um, we all experience illusion to one extent or another when we're all living uh, outside of the one. Um, he says, in this, in this Neoplatonic system of emanation, the things further away from the one are less real than the things closer to the one. So... Um, and Plotinus does say that uh, matter is the furthest removed existent thing from the one, and therefore it is, uh, um, uh, he does say that it is evil. Um, I don't really uh, consider Neoplatonism and uh, Gnosticism to be all that at odds with each other. Um, no, so no. He says uh, in uh, the second Aeneid, the fourth tractate, um, that matter is evil, he says, uh, that passage that's usually quoted as against the Gnostics is actually, uh, it's actually written that against those who say the world is evil. Um, but Platonism, Neoplatonism, and Gnosticism, they have different conceptions of evil. They say uh, uh, when uh, Platonism is talking about the world, um, he's talking about uh, the beauty and harmony of nature and uh, the harmony that seemingly physically went into going into the creation of the world, that everything acts harmoniously and there's beauty in nature. Um, he's not talking about the political or the moral aspects of about the world when he says that. Uh, and that's more of what um, the Gnostics, I think, are talking about. Definitely possible, yeah. Please continue. Well, at the same time, yeah, I agree with you. I think the Neoplatonists and the Gnostics are indebted to each other. They were having conversation. They shared in the idea of Gnosis. They, they have more in common. They're part of this Alexandrian vibe at the time that was saying it wasn't even mystic. It's like we can take these flights and go to the center of uh reality. Of course, these flights were also interior when you think about it. But Plotinus. He also said uh, he wasn't very keen on the flesh, was he, John? I mean, I hear he wouldn't let anybody uh, draw him because he thought he just thought the flesh was bad. He wouldn't take medicine. I mean, I think he was realistic. They were realistic, don't you think, John? I mean, I'm 
I'm 53 and my knee is busted. So I know the flesh is failing me. Vance, you're tired from a long day of work. So you oh, know the yeah. flesh has its limits. <laughs> I mean, it's reality. Totally. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, Plotinus does say that. He says matter is evil because um, there are all these vulnerabilities um, that go along with matter. Um, there, there's the pain of the body. You can oh, get, yeah. you can lose uh, body parts. It's very vulnerable to evil. It's the most vulnerable uh, to evil uh, part in, in creation. Um, yeah, Plotinus didn't take any um, credence or any uh, much admiration to the material world at all. He says he wishes he wasn't born in a body. Uh, he was. He just wants to spend all all of existence, all of eternity with the one where perfection is against this, uh, against the vulnerabilities in an imperfect material world. It's not perfect because it's not the one. Um, and uh, we want to escape the illusory uh, evil world through noose, uh, a Neoplatonic term, which means uh, intellectual intuition of the spiritual realm or the intelligences and through uh, noose, which is the mediation from the material world to the one, um, we uh, we have a comprehension of the one and to, uh, temporarily through our souls, through our uh, spiritual faculties, we escape uh, this material world and uh, get back to the one where uh, we really all want to be in perfection and in goodness and beauty and truth and love and the other attributes of the one. Um, this is the similar to the uh, knowledge within ourselves of our divine spark uh, to get back to the source. Um, uh, and it's also um, a knowledge of recollection, a very platonic concept. Uh, yeah, Plato said, all learning is remembering. Yeah, it's recollection. I quote of that a lot. Influences. I, I really think that Plotinus actually uh, formulated Platonism uh, better than Plato did um, in terms of this Neoplatonic system of what's really going on. Uh, we got the allegory of the cave in Plato of getting back to uh, your source, escaping the the illusions and wickedness of the material of what we normally perceive our everyday empirical experiences to get back to our source. Um, yeah, and through this this um, a person is liberated through this uh, mystical experience of the one in Neoplatonism. Um, a person has no worldly purpose anymore, um, but to be in the one and perhaps teach others about the one, which may be helpful to help some people in their uh, quest to, to do the same thing, escape the world to get back to where uh, we really want to be. Um, the same thing in uh, Gnosticism of going back to getting away from the material world, the archons, the demiurge, all the way back, all the way up the hierarchy of being back to Abraxas. It's, it's the same concept, just a different term or in a different language. Um, it's the Platonic and Aristotelian doctrine to be like God as much as possible. Um, it's, uh, it's also said that uh, truth is beyond the mind or uh, the truth, which is uh, the one, the most real entity in existence is beyond the mind, uh, beyond our empirical perceptions of the material world and beyond our association of ideas uh, to the spiritual um, realm, to the spiritual realm. Well said, indeed. Well, then one day when Plotinus finally gets to be the one, the one 
contemplates Plotinus and he thinks, I wonder what it's like to be Plotinus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe. And there you go. <laughs> that may be why he created the uh, Plotinus and all the other people uh, for a way to know himself or as a means. Well, thus it is said, right? Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. I think, uh, I think the Gnostics were heavily influenced by uh, Plato and Middle Platonism. I agree with uh, the Gnostic scholar uh, Nock that uh, Platonism or Gnosticism, Gnosticism is uh, Platonism run wild. Um, I think if we look at uh, Middle Platonism, um, the basic concepts in that is that uh, we have that uh, virtue in Middle Platonism and in Neoplatonism is more of a means to an end. Virtue is a means to get back to the one. Um, however, um, in some mystical methods, uh, um, you can't really use it as a means. You have to it ha you have to be centered and um, be content and satisfied at every moment in time, rather than wanting to get somewhere, which is uh, pretty hard to do. It takes uh, some meditation and discipline to do that. Yeah, the Gnostics took the Platonic idea of recollection of what already with, is within us, our divine spark, um, as the divine sparks were scattered across the cosmos and placed in everyone. And then um, one has to find the divine spark within to get back um, to the aeons and to uh, the Supreme God. Yeah, I agree. Sometimes I think, John, that uh, instead of obviously... Gnosticism, Neoplatonism, these were created by Western scholars in the 18th century. Plotinus never called himself a Neoplatonist, and yeah. a few, no Gnostics said Gnosticism. A few did call themselves Gnostics, but you wonder if in Alexandria with the Neoplatonists and the Hermeticists and the Christian Gnostics and the Merkaba Jews, we should call them one group, I don't know, the one hunters or something like that, the Gnosis people, because they all overlap and they have a lot in common. They were all looking for the same thing. Yeah, um, there were, there was no uh, term Gnosticism back then. There were all these different groups, but all these different groups had very similar ideas. Um, and um, if you just take away, if you just replace or substitute terms, then um, they're practically the same. Um, and in the in the Nag Hammadi uh, libraries, um, all throughout, there's constant references to the one and to the one who is. Um, all throughout, in many of the uh, discourses and the tractates in the Nag Hammadi library, and I think they're talking about the same one. Um, we have hierarchies of being and emanations in uh, Gnosticism and Neoplatonism, respectively. We have the concept of Nous, uh, Sophia, and uh, Logos coming from uh, Philo of Alexandria. I think this is the same mediation principle of getting to the spiritual realm and of, of a sort of interaction between the spiritual and material realms and all of these different, um, but very similar philosophies. Uh, in the Kabbalah, uh, the Sephiroth, the, the um, abstract uh, principles of, and attributes of the, of the Supreme God, Ein Sof, 
I think are the same as uh, the Platonic forms and the Gnostic aeons. We have the good, the beautiful, justice, wisdom, um, things like that, um, all explained as the same as the same terms in all of these uh, systems. Uh, we have uh, in the Nag Hammadi descriptions of mysticism and mystics. Um, um, so yeah, I think the Gnostics were basically uh, mystics, uh, yeah, which is the core of that actually. Uh, Plotinus says um, in the end of the Aeneids that uh, the secret to the mystery schools, uh, the Orphic and the Eleusinian schools, I believe is what he's referring to, uh, um, is this mystical experience of the one. Um, and uh, that's the mystery, but um, I really don't see how that could be a mystery since it's so difficult to achieve anyway. Um, and I think, I think people who do achieve it are ones who are, who uh, I don't think you can be a, I don't think you can be achieve it and be, and be a bad person. I think they were good people who really tried hard who really achieved it. Um, I think if you're an evil or malicious person, then you can't have, you can't get to this mystical experience. And I think that's another uh, reason for the allegory of uh, going to heaven and hell when you die. Um, it's really saying, you know, you can't have, you can't experience God. You can't be close to God unless you're a good person. Um, another thing uh, is uh, the influence of uh, Neo-Pythagoreanism on uh, Gnosticism, um, which was a movement um, almost contemporary uh, with uh, Middle Platonism that, uh, and they, um, they, uh, they thought they would re, uh, revitalize the school of Pythagoras but they uh, brought in some uh, new or uh, undiscovered things concerning uh, what they called the monad or the one and the dyad, the, the duality that arises or that the monad induces. Um, they thought uh, Numenius was one of these uh, Neo-Pythagoreans. He thought that um, the one or the monad necessarily emanates the dyad. And I thought this was a, I thought this paralleled the Gnostic concept of uh, Abraxas and Barbello, of uh, the one emanating duality from nothing to something, to a uh, duality or to a change in form of the something. Um, but yet um, we still have this eternal principle, uh, this eternal perfect something within the system. Vince, do you have a question, or are you and the one eyeballing each other? <laughs> I made you. No, I made you. No, I made you. <laughs> oh yeah, this is uh, this is music to my ears because, as many listeners and as you know, Miguel, I had my own mystical experience uh -huh. many years ago, and I I saw the unity of consciousness and so forth. Um, and you know, um, for many years, I was. Um, I, I was a practitioner in the religious science, also known as science of mind, and they're very much hooked into um, Plotinus and Neoplatonism. So that's their philosophy. And uh, one question I had was, uh, did Plotinus express his concept of evil the way the religious science people do, which is evil is just lack of good, you know, the, uh, and that also, I would guess, would tie in with the closer you are to the one. 
the less evil it is, right? And the, all the way back down to matter where you're furthest away from the one. And so it's the most evil. Yes. Uh, yeah. In the Neoplatonic system, um, there really is, there's really not much, there's no real evil in it. Um, evil would be a lack of good. The further you are away from the one, uh, the closer you are to what we say is evil, which is really just a privation of the one, a lack of um, existence of the one. Yeah, so, Provatio Bono, as Augustine said, kind yeah. of giving away he was influenced by Neoplatonism. <laughs> he kind of yeah. gives it away yeah. right there. Yeah, and I was just about to say that Plotinus was very, or Augustine was highly influenced by Plotinus and Neoplatonism. And he has the same conception of evil that really a privation that evil doesn't really exist. It's just a lack of our experience of the good. And uh, by if you look at the Neoplatonic system, the closer you are to matter, uh, the closer you'd be to evil. Uh, I think the archons would be um, associates of matter or um, well, the further we're immersed in matter and materiality, um, the further away, the closer we are to evil, the more the archons have dominion over us. Uh, yeah, and even you can't, I mean, you can make an argument that even the archons aren't evil and yelled about, they're just ignorant. They're ignorant, you know, right? Knowledge is what brings us to the good. And the archons represent being completely ignorant of what's above and being completely attached to matter. Absolutely. Um, we have this concept of ignorance. If we're ignorant of the one, we don't have knowledge of the one, then we're much more vulnerable to the evils of the world. Um, and in the, in the Corpus Hermeticum, the Hermetic doctrines and, uh, the the Gnostic doctrines, the main point of uh, Hermeticism and Gnosticism is uh, salvation through knowledge of God. Uh, and that if we, we attain this knowledge of God, then in a sense we're liberated from as much as we possibly can be from matter um, and uh, the material world. Um, uh, and uh, we're saved. Uh, we transcend time. We're in the place that we really want to be in. Uh, um, I also, I wanted to talk about uh, the meaning of life. I, I write about that in my book. And I think it's very important. Uh, um, the, bit, the three basic things which I think uh, the meaning of life is are uh, beauty, truth, and love. I think uh, these things have an uh, intrinsic value in our lives. Um, and uh, nothing that I can think of is would be more meaningful than these three things. I think uh, um, these three things are one, and they can be expressed as uh, the as one thing, as the essence of uh, the one. Um, and they they're emanations from the one to the spiritual realm, and then further away to the material realm. Yeah, I would say so too, but. I mean, most people understand truth and love, but beauty, how would the Platonists define beauty? I know Plato talks about it. I think it's the symposium or one of those, but, uh, or how would Plotinus describe beauty? Yeah. Um, Plato, um, he had a very immaterial conception of beauty. He thought that uh, the beautiful things we see in the material world are just uh, reflections or imitation 
from what is truly beautiful from this uh, spiritual abstract uh, principle or concept of of beauty which we find uh within ourselves or within the spiritual realm uh plotinus uh, said the same sort of thing that um, we see beautiful things in the world and that's only because there is the the uh the abstract concept of beauty that is is the form within these uh beautiful things we see in the world but it goes back to the um the abstract form platonic form or um um principle of the one that is uh that is uh, the real uh true beauty um and that that can be that can be uh another spiritual experience that of um of what is really beauty he says it in the the symposium is the dialogue on it um, the heart of all this is uh, the supreme experience of mystical enlightenment. Um, it's, I think, once once one has an experience, all of this connects and sort of makes sense. And I think people who do have the mystical experience find it much easier to interpret um, and to read what's really being said in in uh, scriptures and in mystical and philosophic texts, which are very um, uh, figurative, poetical, and allegorical. Um, a lot of them is it's very difficult for a scientifically or empirically minded person to take them uh, literally. They defy the laws of nature. Um, but so I, th I do think they should be much that defies the laws of nature within these texts uh, should be um, interpreted metaphorically and uh, exegetically um, to see what they're really saying behind the the figurative language. That's one reason I really love uh, Neoplatonism and philosophy in general is that it doesn't uh, it doesn't coat the uh, truth in this metaphorical poetical language. It it tries to express the literal truth the way it is, um, what's really going on, um, and uh, um, I like that much better. I think it's more honest. Um, it's much uh, more esoteric. Um, and um, a lot of people, most people don't accept that. They would rather have the uh, Christian or the mythological coding of uh, the truth. There's one part of your book uh, for the audience, again, full of good information. If you want to learn about mysticism and certainly Neoplatonism and Gnosticism too, but uh, John always comes up with some excellent remarks here and there. Uh, there's one, uh, I wrote it down here, it's a couple of senses, and goes, without evil, one cannot be enlightened. The fact that everyone dies is proof that God loves everyone. Why <laughs> did you write that? I thought that was a cool line. <laughs> Thanks, yeah. Um, well, I thought that if everyone existed forever and eternally, um, uh. life would get very boring and very dull. Um um, we would always be in a constant circle. I think uh, I like what Aristotle said. He said, or time is cyclical or it's motion. Or um, I heard uh, one guy uh, in, uh, in uh, True Detective said that time is a flat circle. And I, 
And I agree with, I kind of agree with that, that at Circle, the sun rises and sets over and over again. The, we, we keep doing, we, in our own lives, we keep doing the same sort of things with little variations over and over again. And I think um, once we die physically, um, we are the part of us that is divine. Our divine spark goes back to the one. It goes back to um, where it was before we were uh, alive. And then we really are in, in eternity with the one. It's sort of a universal salvation that we go back to where we really are. Just philosophy is a preparation for death. Yeah, Socrates said. So, yeah, well said. Uh, yeah, could be like the Stoic said, everything just starts over and eternal return. Only the gods notice this, so that's why they're gods, because they've, they've remembered they keep being in the cycle. But you, Vance, and I have had this conversation in an infinite number of times in <laughs> different cycles. Well, I, I don't know about um, that. I, I, really, I don't think that... Um, the Nietzschean eternal recurrence that everything happens exactly the same over and over again happens. I, I think that the universe really is infinite and uh, we do have uh, different things happen, but the same cycles happen in our day-to-day -day lives infinitely. Uh, if, um, but yeah, uh, yeah, they were just showing one model of it. So, Thanks um, for your concept. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, again, mystics, mystics going to speculate. Um, I guess now I would like to talk about, of course, and this, of course, ties right into the idea of the universe and eternal return and so forth. But uh, what are your views on free will? Um, I'm a, uh, I'm a determinist. Um, I think uh, we're physically determined that um, we can't walk through walls, literally. <laughs> no. That um, we're determined to go to bed, to get up, to take care of our bodies. Um, and yeah, I think that um, it's, it's, uh, there's, some people are more free than other people. If you have a mental disability, then you're not as free as someone who doesn't have a mental disability. Um, and you can't really, uh, there's all, there's certain extents of free will. You can't really say that um, one is completely true or the other is completely true because of these extents of, of different people having being capable of doing things um, more than other people are capable of them. Um, and, uh, but I think that um, the people who live in accordance with reason are much freer than people who don't, who are um, slaves to their appetites or slaves to their desires. Um, so there's all this extent to how free are you? I mean, the closer we are to God, the closer we are to one, the, the more free we are. Um, so I think that's as free as we can possibly get in our lives, in our physically determined lives. Yeah, I think you're 100% right. Uh, limited free will, but as we awaken, it gets better. Uh, and uh, what about your view on uh, reincarnation? I believe you write, uh, reincarnation is both true and false. 
Well, I think that uh, literally, like in terms of the Hindu conceptions of reincarnation, that you die if you're bad, you are reincarnated as a bug, or if you're good, <laughs> yeah, you're reincarnated as a Hindu priest. Um, I, I don't, I disagree with that. Um, I think that the same personalities and the same types of people keep um, coming up over and over again in history. So uh, the same sort of personality or soul in that sense keeps coming up again and again. But um, uh. enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Champion and receive up to fifteen hundred dollars back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet when you register with BetMGM. You'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code Champion and receive up to fifteen hundred dollars back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly see betmgm.com for terms 21 plus only virginia only new customer offer subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER promotion promotional offer not available in washington dc at parker our purpose is simple We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Our individual person's um, to our own time and place are not reincarnated with our uh, memories wiped clean into another person. I, I don't think that's the case. I think that Hindu reincarnation is yet another uh, figurative interpretation for um, being a good person will make you a better person or being a bad person will make you a worse person and you'll be lower and lower close to matter or further and further up into the spiritual realm. If, if one is, um, good but uh it's a uh, it's difficult uh being a mystic or a gnostic in the 21st century because uh we live in a such a society that's uh, so ungnostic so and uh doesn't really is not even really uh spiritual uh much but maybe uh maybe uh since you've um, met so many people with uh, like-minded views maybe you would uh say that's more so than uh what meets the eye, but uh, when you uh, watch or read the news, you're entering a narrative written, directed, and produced by the Demiurge. Yeah, you ain't whistling Dixie. <laughs> yeah, these are some. Yeah, these are some strange times, and I would certainly agree with you. And um, Vance, uh, do you have a question for John on any of these topics? Yeah, I, I've probably got a, about a million of them. <laughs> All right, shoot a few. But uh, yeah. Um, how is it that we can have all these multitudinous divine sparks, but the one is really one and unified and is really not separate from anything? Yeah, the old question of uh, pantheism and panatheistic can work together, right? Is he yeah, everywhere, but or, yeah. yeah, yeah, that's a good question. Uh, 
Well, this one, the supreme principle, it's so powerful, so immense, so transcendent that um, it just, a lot of, some would say it just burst forth, burst forth creation out of its uh, power. It's a incomprehensive power and um, um, mightiness. Uh, And, uh, and because of this, the divine sparks were scattered um, as emanations. In a sense, uh, the world was created by accident out of uh, the one. It, It was created out of the necessity for something from nothing um and um that that is that's the one of the relationships of the one and the many of uh the one necessarily giving rise to the many because if there's a one implies there's a many and a many implies there's a one um what was the other part of your question well how is it that we could ever be separate from the one if the one is always if the one split itself up truly it wouldn't be the one anymore so how is that possible i have my own understanding of it but i'm interested in hearing what you have to say uh yeah the one the one being perfect and uh supreme and supremely powerful um it wouldn't really um separate itself um it's sort of like uh, Aristotle's unmoved mover that it's unmoved itself. It's perfect. It contemplates itself, but yet it, it gives rise. It emanates out of its power and mightiness. Um, all of creation, since it's so great and mighty and sublime um, in the mystical experience uh, of enlightenment. Um, I sort of asked a question and then I wanted to know about how did everything come to be? How did creation uh, um, exist? And in the experience, I, I experienced this very sublime feeling of utter beauty and immense um, love out of nothing. Um, and I think this was somewhat of a revelation of, uh, of the one coming out of nothing and out of its mighty supreme power and uh and um strength or mightiness uh, bursting forth creation all the way down to uh the material world we'd have to create time first right <laughs> can't create yeah. anything in time before you create time but what kind of time frame does it use to create time i think before creation the time didn't exist at all since there was nothing uh, to move, but, um, uh, so before creation, there is no time. Um, once, um, the logical necessity of something having to exist from nothing came about, then that was the beginning of time. Um, and then that's what, uh, burst forth, uh, the spiritual realm and the material realm. It was a paradox there, right? Though, um, something had to come about and, Therefore, there was two states before it came about and after it came about, and there you have time before uh, and after. Well, the, the something-nothing um, emergence does seem like a paradox, but um, if you look at the infinite regressive causes, it doesn't make sense because there's always another cause and what caused the infinite regressive right. causes. Um, and so I, that what led me to creation out of nothing and, and this logical necessity of something 
having to exist and the logical necessity of of the one um, bringing about creation out of its supreme power and um, and it really is it is a beneficial entity of bringing out love, beauty, and truth and emanating these out into the cosmos, but the for closer the further away we get to them, the close the further the closer we get to matter um, and uh, yeah, yeah, it's hard it's very difficult for people to wrap to wrap their heads around the uh, something nothing emergence, and I understand that, but um, I think that's I think that's the case. Okay. Makes sense. I remember as a kid uh, asking some, uh, me telling some girl, well, God created everything. Who created God? And the girl said, lived in Mexico, nothing created God. La nada in Spanish. And I remember my head ringing for days, like I'm trying to conceive nothing. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Which is like God. my head hurt. <laughs> he created himself because he was the most powerful and the only entity most powerful enough to do it. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, yeah. And as uh, do you have another question, Vance? I have one last question for John. Yeah. How about existence itself? What do you have to say about existence itself? I mean, beyond all this creating and so forth and divine sparks existence. What have you said about that? That would be being right. Just being. Uh, not necessarily, not necessarily. My head is hurting again. <laughs> <laughs> Depends on what you mean by being. I think it, it uh, talks about what kind of being do we mean? Which uh, level of being are, uh, do we mean? Do we mean the material being or the spiritual being um, or the supreme being? Um, I think I, I'd have to go back uh, with what I said before about uh, something coming out of nothing that uh, existence, what we experience as matter, really is um, at its most fundamental uh, reduced level um, is divine light, that everything is really the light of God, and it's only out of the illusion of matter and creation that we think it's anything different. So, And this divine light of God really is uh, the one, and everything really is that, but we don't know it. We're always in ignorance about it. And at the mystical experience, what we per, uh, perceive to be uh, true at its fundamental level, we uh, we are we escape that illusion uh, momentarily and uh, see reality for what it truly is. So that I I think that's being that's that everything at its most fundamental reduced level is uh, divine light or, or oneness. Yeah, existence. I think it always. I think it was timeless existence is timeless always was and always will be that's uh, i don't think every, anything got created yeah. or uncreated or it's just all all of it is and inside the mind of this thing are an infinite number of consciousness conscious things each of which creates its own subjective time but they all exist simultaneously and they're all unified and in in fact but the illusion uh, comes about that we're separate and here we are that's my take on it sorry i just had to share that yeah the uh, the infinity within the one um yeah some would say the platonic ideas exist within the one and they're infinite or can be manifested in an infinite uh variety of ways um i i also think uh 
uh, the Gnostics, uh, they were around during the Roman Empire, and uh, they had a similar attitude to the Stoics. I think that um, they, they lived in this uh, large, corrupt, and impersonal empire, and they were powerless to change it, um, which uh, it fosters an inward self-control type of spirituality. Um, we can't control an immoral empire, but we can control ourselves. A good point. And of course, yeah, sto- yeah Stoicism already had that uh, sort of vibe, sort of the Greek philosopher. So, yeah. So, and as we get to the end, um, I guess sort of a useful question, and you've touched upon it at the beginning, John, uh, what can an individual do in your view to make contact with the one? I know in one part you write, uh, uh, once liberated in the one has no worldly purpose anymore, but to be in the one and perhaps tell others about the one. Is that it? Spread the gnosis? Yes, it's it's always good to spread the gnosis. Um, one, uh, various mystics do have methods for um, obtain, obtaining experience of the one, but um, in my experience, um, you can't really it's very difficult to do it. And it is almost a uh, paradox or contradiction to do because you can't have any desires. You can't really (laughs) want to be in the one you have to just be as good as possible and have no desires be totally satisfied in the moment. And uh, through this, um, it sort of moves up on its own spiritual spiritually with um, discipline of the body, with concentration of the mind um itself because we're we're talking about a state of no desires where everything is fulfilled and uh it takes a lot of patience to do that and um it may not be accessible uh to everyone if if we believe some of the gnostics who thought um only some people have divine sparks um within themselves to be saved that's very difficult but perhaps people could create uh, put people could try through great uh, discipline and meditation to achieve it. Yeah, very true. There are definitely many paths to get there, and as you sometimes you just gotta test the waters. And as the Gnostics and these ancient mystics said, know yourself, know what uh, know what works for you, know what your own uh, will or purpose is. Uh, so yeah, it makes I, sense. Yeah, I, I do think that's what Socrates meant when he said, know thyself, to know our divine spark, to know our souls. And the divine spark is, uh, it really is um, the one or the experience with the one. I, the Hindus had the same notion of Atman and Brahman, Atman being the soul, and um, Atman and Brahman are are one, are the same thing. Yes, indeed. Well said. Well said. Well, this has been a great conversation. Uh, uh, John, do you have a presence out there on the internet? Or if not, where can people find your work becoming Aeon? Yeah, I have a website right now. It's uh, it's called uh, remnanteconomicphilosopher.com. Dot com. All right. I will have that on the show notes and people can purchase your book through there or Amazon. Where can they find their book just in case? Yes, I have the link to um, my book on the website. I, it's published with Author House Publishing. Um, it's self-published. Um, I also have a link to your site on my site since I, I enjoy uh, the show a lot. Um, 
and uh, you'll find a lot of my ideas there. Awesome, awesome. Yes, in this modern times, uh, in, unlike the ancient times, the Neoplatonists and the Gnostics need to hang together, or uh, as Benjamin Franklin said, we'll hang apart. <laughs> yeah, basically the same system. And and once Christianity got in there, it, it just took on a, a Christian uh, right. terminology. Yes, agreed. Awesome. Well, uh, first of all, Vance, thanks for uh, keeping us company in this journey from the one to many to Vance, Miguel, and John. <laughs> infinite diversity through infinite combinations. Idic yeah, <laughs> was in yeah. Star Trek. Remember that? Yeah, yeah it was yeah. great. It was great. Uh, John, it's been a pleasure uh, hearing all these yeah. wonderful things about Plotinus. Enjoyed it very much. And uh, thanks so to you in I the future. Yes, John, thank you very much for coming on AM Byte, and uh, hopefully we can have another conversation in the future. Yeah, yeah, thank you both so much. I, it was, it was, uh, went very well, I think. Um, maybe I'll write an essay for you uh, on the site or sometime. No, that would be great. Yes, yes, send it over. I will publish it anon immediately. Awesome. Well, thank you very much, John, and good luck with all your projects. Thank you. You too. And there you have it, oh you shining crazy diamonds, our interview with John Edgecombe. Ready to embrace the way of the philosopher, which as Socrates said, is just about preparing to die. I'll let you ponder this, but now let us to our interview with Dr. Jeffrey Kupperman on A Theurgist Book of Hours, complete for all subscribers. Write your own gospel, live your own myth. This is the Aeon Byte interview, and with us we have the pleasure of being joined back by Jeffrey Kupperman to discuss his new book, A Theurgist Book of Hours, and hopefully we will cover some ground on his past book, which I really love, and it's, uh, it has a prominent place on my own shelf, and that is Living Theurgy. Jeffrey, thanks for coming back. Hey, thanks for having me. Pleasure is all ours. And with us, we've got the Moondog, Vance. Vance, how are you doing? Oh, not too bad for the end of a work day on my uh, side of the country. And uh, hoping that I can uh, do some theurgy to make a successful interview. There you go. There you go. The one is with us, I hope so. Yeah. Come so, on, one. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so awesome. So, Jeffrey, tell us a little bit about a theurgist book of ours. What I like about your work, the two books that uh, are out from Avalonia Press is that these books are not just historical or philosophical, but these books are usable in your life, right? That was absolutely the, the point. I mean, you can read any number of, you know, traditional texts, and you know, there are dozens of translations of the Amblicus out there, and all the academia you could want, but if you don't actually use it, it kind of defeats the point of what it was actually <laughs> exists for. Yeah, the, these guys are back in those days that weren't cosplaying. They were doing some serious work. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And um, I guess, uh, are you familiar with the Gnostic Book of Hours by June Singer? Is there any inspiration there? A little bit. 
I, I have it on my shelf somewhere. Um, most of the inspiration actually came um, when I was reading various papers and I found one on Plethon's calendar reform. So Plethon is this uh, uh, Greek philosopher and he's the one who got the uh, Greek texts of Plato and Aristotle and uh, the Hermetica to the Medici family who then got it to Marsilio Ficino to translate from the first time from the Greek into Latin. And Plethon is a sort of this interesting guy. He starts off as, you know, Greek Orthodox. And as he gets more into reading Plato, he basically becomes a neo-pagan, uh, like a 15th century neo-pagan, but, but oh, wow. still uh, a neo-pagan. Um, and he decides that he's going to create basically a, a liturgical calendar. Um, I think the book is called, uh, was called uh, Nomi, N-O-M-I. Um, it was burnt uh, by, the, by the Orthodox Church. Um, so we only have bits and pieces of it left. Um, but there are two uh, fairly extensive articles on how the calendar worked and how it interacted with, uh, with the months and the lunar cycles and things like that. And so I was reading those and going, well, that's a neat idea. Someone should do something with that. And I looked around and I was the only one there. So I guess it was for me. <laughs> it was your destiny. And you would say your book, I really enjoyed it. Uh, this is something that anybody can use or do they have to have a certain level of understanding or attitude about uh, Platonism or Neoplatonism? Or is this something that can useful to any seeker out there? My intent is that it could be useful to, to anyone. Um, I think uh, Proclus and Iamblichus are sort of, sort of clear on this, on the nature of prayer um, and its relationship to theurgy and that really any prayer can be theurgic in nature. It's not the prayer itself so much as the prayers. That's probably not a word, but the person who is praying and their approach to that prayer. Um, so, you know, if you are a devout Roman Catholic and you want to do theurgy, cool. There are like dozens of books of hours that, that you could use. Um, if you are wanting something that is uh, far more platonic in nature, then, hey, I wrote a book for you. Um, <laughs> and you can certainly use that. But you don't need to necessarily be this, you know, great master of, of theurgy or you know, have read all the Plato and all the Amblichus. Uh, really, if you can follow along how the, the three or four different calendars sort of interact with each other, anyone can use it. Awesome, awesome. And yeah, for the audience, uh, I definitely also advise uh, a Gnostic book of ours because somehow June Singer can make the darkest parts of the secret book of John sound inspirational and useful. But in uh, a book of ours, just so the audience knows, that is simply a, uh, let's see, as you write, a monastic practices without entering a monastery, right? It's like being a, a lay monk, <laughs> part-time <Yeah>. monk. <laughs> Basically, you know, rich people, because they're the only ones who could read and afford <laughs> these things, decided, hey, these monks, they're like closer to God. We like that too. But I don't really want to be a monk. Uh, so can we get like monk light, please? <laughs> uh, 
And so they, they did the, the prayers. A dummies book of monks, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Monks for dummies. Exactly. Exactly. Buzz. Did they read them every monks. hour? You know, in other words, are you supposed to practice it? And like every hour you'd open the book and, and read another passage. Um, it, it, it depends on which for which book of hours. Um, most of the time they are divided into a certain number of, of periods in the day that you would do prayer. So like a morning prayer, an afternoon prayer, an evening prayer, um, or you know, the five times pr- uh, daily that uh, Muslims pray, uh, that, that sort of thing. Um, I think most, and I, this is trying to remember something that I looked up many, many years ago. Uh, I think most Christian books of hours tend to do three periods a day. Um, mine has, has three periods a day as well, but it's not like every hour. No. Okay, great. And I wanted to ask you, or I wanted to mention to Jeffrey, so the audience, uh, knows a little bit more about you, but, uh, whenever I've interviewed Mitch Horowitz, uh, the great occult historian and a friend, he always makes sure to tell everybody that he's not just a historian, he's a believing historian. And you could say the same thing about you, right? You eat your own dog food. You're you're a scholar, but you're also a, might say, mystic, occultist, esotericist, whatever you want to call it. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I try not to write things for people to do that I am not going to do it myself <laughs> at some point it, it it seems sort of crass i don't know um so yeah I, I you could describe me as both a scholar and a practitioner awesome awesome i always like to hear that although no i mean what am i saying i of course i interview a lot of scholars who are secular and i of course i'm complete in gratitude for for all the work they do but it's always nice to uh, talk to somebody who's in the same heretical circles too um and uh, why don't we talk a little bit about uh, why don't we talk a little bit uh, about history because uh, i think the last time i interviewed was like 2015 it's like uh, time flies but it's been a long time and it was on your book living theurgy and of course your book a theurgy's book of hours also has a good uh, summary of neoplatonism and how it evolved in theurgy and all that good stuff but let's say you, if you were, I don't know, at a uh, Renaissance fair, I think I'm going to take the kids to the Renaissance fair uh, here up here in Wisconsin and by Kenosha this weekend. But let's say you're there, Jeffrey, and some guy dressed as King Arthur comes into you and said, oh, by the way, uh, what is Neoplatonism? What would be your elevator answer pitch? Um, I, you know, that the- People ask that question a lot, and I don't know that I have a, a two-minute or a like a 30-second um, pitch on it. Neoplatonism is Platonism as it evolved into the 3rd, 4th, and 5th centuries and beyond. That, that's my new short, short version. <laughs> and it should be mentioned, right, that uh, Neoplatonism is not a term that those individuals used in those times. This is a Western colonial term, right? Right. This was uh, German scholars uh, came up with it. Uh, the Neoplatonists, they, they, they were just Platonists. They understood themselves to be in the line uh, of Platonic thought. I and mean, some of them, like Proclus, were the head of the Platonic Academy in Athens. So hard to not call them Platonists. 
Yeah, I mean, uh, Plotinus, all, he just thought he was he was basically writing commentary on Plato. That's what he was doing. Right. And you, and you see a lot of that from, from the later play. Iamblichus, you know, we have a, a handful of his bits and pieces of his commentaries. We've got all sorts uh, of Proclus. Um, you know, we jump ahead a thousand years and we've got uh, Ficino and all of his commentaries. And he would have considered himself just as much a Platonist as uh, Proclus or Plotinus or, you know, uh, pro probably not Aristotle, but... <laughs> You know, in that line. And why do you think this scholar called it Neoplatonism? Was there some sort of gap or huge innovation or something that said, uh, let's create a new term? I think it has more to do with sort of the time and place where the study was being done. You know, it, it's, it's, you know, in the, the throes of modernity, um, you have German intellectualism, it's let's put everything in its own little box. And so Platonism will be, you know, from this time period to this time period, and then we'll have middle Platonism from here to here, and then Neoplatonism coming afterwards, because it's it's it makes things seem neat and tidy when they're really not. <laughs> no, they never are. I mean, it was what Thomas More in the 18th century came up with the term Gnosticism to talk about uh, the Nicolaitans in the book of Revelation. Of course, terms like Hinduism and Buddhism also are Western constructs. So, um, yeah, I guess we just got to put it all in categories, right? Yeah. And uh, what would you say beyond the messy stuff, what would you say are some of the innovations that Plotinus brought to Platonism? Yeah, I'm going to preface this with I'm not really a Plotinus guy. Mm -hmm. um, you know, um, and in many ways, I think Plotinus is almost, if not as much of a middle Platonist as he is a Neoplatonist. You know, he still has that dislike of matter going on, though his understanding of why matter is, is flawed is, is somewhat different from, say, the Gnostics um, were. In many ways, I would argue that his student Porfiry was probably like the first straight up Neoplatonist, as it were. Um, in general, the things that we sort of see coming out from this time period are like a, a reification of the, the idea of the one um, from Plato's Parmenides, which probably did. And this is so this is a, a dialogue where there are a number of hypotheses postulated uh, to explain basically how everything is. And if, if everything comes from something, how does that work? If everything comes from nothing, how does that work? Uh, and so on. And in this Plato posits uh, this thing he calls the one, um, which is sort of the, the source of everything that exists beyond everything. I don't know that there's a lot of evidence to suggest that he actually thought there was this ontological or metaphysical thing, for lack of a better terms, that, that he called the one. I think for him, it was far more of a thought experiment. But for the later, later Platonists, um, certainly Porfiry, Iamblichus, Proclus, down the line, the one basically becomes God, for, for lack of a better term, but not a anthropomorphic god the one is this thing and that's not even a good term for it because the, the one is beyond 
all things. It's beyond saying it's beyond all things. There's nothing that we can say about it that really reflects it. There's nothing we can say in negative that really reflects it. It is beyond language itself. But it's still, again, for lack of a better term, a real thing. It is, if you have the chain of being from you know the gods all the way down to humanity, the one is what that chain hangs from. And so I think that's probably one of the, the, the first major contributions uh, of the later Platonists. Um, from their Porphyry, uh, you know, he posits um, like a, God, it's been so long, um, a being, I think being life, mind, triad, um, you know, that, you know, all things have being, but only some things have being in life and even fewer things have being life and mind. Um, so that becomes a, 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 a mainstay uh, as well. Fascinating. And yeah, that is true because I think Plotinus, or I think it's very interesting how you said it was a thought experiment because yeah, I think Plotinus, he doesn't seem to think you're really going anywhere. I mean, he talks about you're going inward and he stood in front of the one. It's almost like a, a state of being, a, a lifting of the veils. And is so what happened, and of course, correct me if I'm wrong, is that the later Neoplatonists, they said, no, I think like Proclus, no, 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 we actually have to go somewhere. Our souls have to take a journey, right? We, it's, uh, there's some exercises we got to do. Yeah, right. For Plotinus, the soul never really fully descends into matter. So there's always some bit of it contemplating the noetic realm or the gods or the one all the time. And so all we really need to do is sort of move back up to that. Um, it was Iamblichus who said, no, 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 no. The soul <laughs> fully descends into matter. And so we must purify the soul so that it can become fully what it is, um, you know, it, the divine being that the soul, that the human soul is. Um, it, but it's, it's sort of interesting because Freamblichus, there is this sort of, you purify the soul and you disincarnate, but you never actually leave the cycle of, of reincarnation. Uh, it's just that you reincarnate um, differently, that most of us, um, are, you know, ne'er-do-wells and we get pulled kicking and screaming back into our bodies by our daemons. Um, those who have sort of been around the theurgic block for a while <laughs> tend to have um, a better understanding of how they should um, project a life is, is how uh, Iamblichus puts it. Um, and that more or less they tend to pick the right thing, but they're still somewhat mired in matter. So while there's a certain amount of choice about how the incarnation takes place, uh, what type of life you're going to have, you're still being pulled back into the body. It's really the, the sort of top tier, uh, theurgic sages, I, I call them. Um, I think uh, Dr. Uh, Gregory Shaw refers to them as sort of like bodhisattva-like beings. Um, who, because their souls are entirely pure and free of matter, they can they they still reincarnate, but 
they do not become confused and lost in that incarnation. They always retain memory of themselves as a divine being. And so they engage in the sort of demiurgy, this, this work with the divine creator. Mm, and that's, again, you said uh, bodhisattva, that is to basically improve the universe, get others to wake their butts up, that kind of stuff? or Yeah, pretty much. Interesting, interesting. And uh, what would you say is theurgy, or when did theurgy start or come to the scene as another spiritual tech? It's probably been around since Middle Platonism. Um, we know that Porphyry was certainly familiar with it. Plotinus may or may not have been. There are some stories that he practiced magic, for instance, and whether or not that mm. magic was meant to be theurgy is, is, is questionable. Um, but it becomes sort of fully integrated uh, with Iamblichus um, and his sort of famous uh, text uh, on the mysteries, which is what Messerly uh, Ficino uh, called it. And it's basically this answer or a series of answers to a number of questions that Porfiry posed to one of Iamblichus's students. Um, and so Iamblichus sort of puts on this Egyptian guise because the student was an Egyptian and goes about trying to answer these questions and sort of rectify things where, where misunderstandings were, were possibly had. Um, and we are... We, I am pretty certain that in, in his academy, he would eventually have taught theurgy as sort of the top advanced sort of thing that you would have uh, started uh, with basic um, Pythagorean philosophy, then Aristotelianism, then Socrates and Plato. And then once you had all of that stuff, he would actually teach about religion. And then once you understood theology properly, then he would teach uh, theurgy as sort of that mystical application of uh, the theology. So there's this very um, set philosophy, philosophy, theology, theurgy um, order of, of how he taught. Certainly asking a lot to his students, but uh, yeah, it runs with the Kabbalah. You got a lot of uh, hoops to jump through before you could even get to the meaty stuff. And uh, I've got some notes here, Jeffrey, on your book. Uh, you call it God Activity, Engaging in the Process of Divination and Demiurgy, only possible through the Demiurge, and at some point it is becoming divine. Do you think that was that the ultimate one to be full divine individual here on earth so far as possible as, as plato would say but but <laughs> but yes i think that is the ultimate goal of theurgy of becoming these theurgic sages I mean, these bodhisattva like beings do to help unfold uh, creation uh, alongside the gods and, and the divine creator makes sense and it should be mentioned to uh about the demiurge, and I think in modern times, the Gnostics have won the PR when it comes to the demiurge. Yeah. I think. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And I, I think I, they won. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, and I have a lot of Gnostic friends. So, so 
this gets brought up almost any time I have to do a presentation <laughs> on Neoplatonism. Yeah, um, who are you rooting for? I can't believe this guy. <laughs> yeah. it's like, but, you know, guys, they barely called him the Demiurge of the Gnostic text. He had a name. You know, <laughs> use that, please. <laughs> so, yeah, Archon, in, yeah. <laughs> in, in Neoplatonism, uh, the Demiurge is a divine being that is described by Plato as being all good and wanting only good for that which it has created, which is a bit different from, say, Yaldabaoth. Exactly. So it's something we uh, practitioners should uh, shoot for, create like the gods, if you would. Yeah, because like in, if I were to pose this like as a Christian Neoplatonist, the Logos is, I think, clearly the demiurgic being i mean you mm-hmm. see it especially uh in pseudo dionysia so jesus christ the logos whichever you prefer um is the demiurge which is clearly not the gnostic view um but i think it's a valid neoplatonic interpretation definitely i mean uh justin martyr called jesus the demiurge of yahweh so uh that was definitely in the air, but again, the Christian Gnostics decided to take another route and all these speculations and possibilities. It was that stew in Alexandria where everything was valid as long as you could take a flight to meet the one at, at any cost or whatever you do. And would you say theurgy is like a, a broad set of practices, like whatever gets you to the night, whatever gets you to the one? Or is it narrow where there's only certain practices? Um, and what would be some of the practices? I mean, your book would have, this is all from the Theurgist handbook. It's right there from the ancient times, and they called it Theurgy. Right. Um, I, it's, I don't think it's a question that can be answered with any um, authority because no Theurgic like workings have survived in, in, in print. So we just don't know. Um, my learned opinion, well, yeah, we'll call it that, um, is that it was probably a fairly broad category of practices, not necessarily an anything goes sort of thing. Yeah, clearly differentiates between theurgy and sorcery, for instance. So sorcery for him um, was you know, ritual practices, magical practices that um, sort of deceived the spirits into uh, acting in a certain way for your benefit, as opposed to working with the divine will itself. Um, But we don't have anything specific. Prayer is about the only thing that we get a sort of a specific and prayer is theurgy that, that in fact theurgy cannot be without prayer it is a major component even more so than sacrifice uh, was um but beyond that what exactly theurgy may have looked like is is questionable um there is a lot of speculation that it may have had some similarities to the spells and the greek magical papyri uh, for instance, and the, the various, uh, you know, barbaric names of evocation, as, as it says in the uh, Chaldean, or, Chaldean oracles. Um, and because of that, I felt 
fairly free to sort of develop things. I think, well, yeah, this could be theurgic in nature. It has the goal, a theurgic goal. We're going to try to write it in such a way that it works, that you are trying to actively uh, go within you know, the divine will and finding your own uh, divine nature um, and sort of putting a ritual framework around that. Um, based around, in many cases, the, the PGM, uh, but not always explicitly so, at least in, in living theurgy. Um, in a theurgist book of hours, it's, it's, it's straight up prayers, um, generally following the formats described uh, by Plethon. Awesome. Yeah, and interesting you say none of these survived. I mean, you had, uh, yeah, you've got the lineage with Neoplatinus and then Porphyry, Iamblichus, Proclus, uh, Pseudo-Dionysus. But what happened? I mean, for example, I know, obviously, the Christian Gnostic texts were went underground, vanish. Uh, we have, obviously, documentation by the church fathers, Irenaeus, and all those cats, pretty detailed at times. But we know, and obviously the Hermeticists were kind of friendly to the Eastern Roman Empire, to the Byzantine Empire. What happened with Neoplatonism? It was, was the Byzantine Empire uh, not as friendly towards uh, the Neoplatonists? Uh, the Roman emperors were not as... Yeah, the em <laughs> uh, I think it was Justinian who closed the, uh, the, the academy. Um, and, there, and there's, it's sort of interesting because there's kind of this back and forth where we see a handful of Iamblichus students, for instance, instance become uh, counselors to the emperor. Um, and occasionally when the new emperor came about and that emperor was not just Christian, but really, really, really Christian, they <laughs> occasionally put some of them to death. And many of them just sort of headed for the hills. Um, but when it comes to like the theurgic texts themselves, I guess it's questionable as to whether or not they ever actually existed. If, if anything actually got written down versus it being a strictly oral tradition. Um, I don't think that there's really anything one way or the other, nothing off the top of my head, at least uh, that, that, suggests that, that they were necessarily written down. Yeah, that's a good point. There would have been uh, the mystery, the mystery, the hidden mystery or the mystery religion vibe, which you obviously have it. You have it in middle Platonism and in Gnosticism, all that, the stuff you just don't leave out so to get caught in, of course, you're 100% right in the Byzantine Empire. It depended on the emperor. One emperor might say, this worshiping statues and icons, like destroy them all. And then the next emperor, oh, no, I like all this beauty. Okay, so it depended on which side, which emperor was doing whatever it is, as it so happens in history. And, and Jeffrey, when doing theurgy, you mentioned the, you've mentioned the daemons. So and you didn't want to use sorcery to deal with the wrong spirits. But in theurgy, are you getting assistance from the daemons and maybe the younger gods? Or how do they play a part in it? There is, a, I think, a fairly concrete sort of hierarchy. Um, you have human souls, heroes, angel, uh, daemons, angels, archangels, and a variety of gods at, at different levels 
uh, of activity. Um, for the most part, it seems like you're going to be working with daemons and especially uh, this thing ca called the personal daemon, um, sort of like the holy guardian angel and the Abermelon working. It, this is the daemon that is set to watch over your soul and, and guide it throughout all of its incarnations or at least the vast majority of, of its incarnations. Um, and there's, uh, Ambulus talks about, you know, there's, there's this working, this ritual uh, where one uh, evokes or invokes the personal daemon and you learn its name. And from there, it basically becomes your teacher in, in theurgy, um, which sort of suggests there may have not been a huge need for written text, though, though I have to imagine that while you're still sort of in that learning phase of how to uh, communicate with the daemon, how to receive communications from it. Um, there's probably somebody watching over you to make sure you don't become a head case as frequently happens in, in, uh, with ceremonial magicians, it, it seems like. Um, but yeah, you, you're, you're sort of set over, you have this daemon who, who's set over you, uh, but it's sort of suggestive that as your soul progresses becomes more and more pure that eventually you leave the daemon behind not that you surpass it because platonism has a fairly an entirely strict ontology so a, a soul is always a soul is always a soul it doesn't become a daemon it doesn't then become an angel or an archangel or anything like that but at, at some point in your spiritual progress uh, your daemon no longer serves the function or can serve the function that it has been and you sort of get handed off to an angel and then eventually an archangel and so on um and so for like plotinus for instance there there is a story and it's you know written by you know a plotinus fanboy so it's hard to tell exactly <laughs> how true it might have been but that you know, he's in egypt because he because he's uh, egyptian himself I, I believe um and you know there's a an Egyptian priest who's going to conjure his daemon and he does the thing and a god shows up uh -oh. um, which whether or not the story is true it does actually fit in with sort of the later theurgic understanding of the soul's progression and, and who's in charge of the soul yeah it gets pretty complicated I mean I was looking uh, at a was it a website called Hellenic Faith and man the the cosmology is pretty complicated. I thought the secret book of John was complicated, and it is, but this one's pretty complicated too. So these guys love these star maps, these astral maps of the noetic realms and the psychic cosmos and the world soul. I mean, they were, uh, God, they were like, they would make great dungeon masters today, don't you think, Jeffrey? If we could let them. They would. I mean, they're, they, they never present something like as concrete as like the Apocryphon of John. Mm -hmm. But if you go through enough of, of their texts, you get this sort of rich panoply of the divine on multiple levels uh, in trying to understand how, you know, the demiurgic Zeus is related to uh, noetic Zeus, uh, <laughs> which is somehow related to, you know, Zeus who is doing stuff in the, in the physical world and, are they the same Zeus's, Zeus, I, whatever the plural of Zeus is, um, or are they different Zeus's, 
or, or, or are they the same Zeus functioning different functioning on different ontological levels, which is my under understanding of it. But there's just this rich we tapestry that, that's the word uh, of of these gods and, and daemons and, and such. And at some point there was an angelology as well uh, that, uh, that Proclus was, uh, had developed and of course has since been lost, um, which would have interwoven with that. And we've got these you know, grand visions uh, of the gods, of the visible gods in their orbits around the heavens and in their train, you know, the archangels and the angels and the daemons and the heroes, and finally, you know, us souls, and we're you know moving along in this divine sphere and listening to this sort of the music of the spheres type thing going on. Uh, it's some really interesting stuff. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 a lot of fun. I love these things. And uh, Vance, do you have a question for Jeffrey, or does your daemon have a question? <laughs> they all do all, all, all the do. way up all the way up to the one the one has a question <laughs> no yeah jeffrey um do you think plotinus practiced theurgy and didn't he claim to have uh you know stood in the presence of the one so that he would have direct contact with the one at least sometimes and would he have the need to use the ladder of you know cosmic beings in order to you know contact the right entity to achieve what he wanted to achieve in theurgy? Right. Um, I think there is some textual, I don't know if evidence is the right word, suggestion that at some point Plotinus may have used theurgy, but he seems to completely abandon it for, for theoria, for, for contemplation. Uh, and that through contemplation itself, you can raise the mind and the soul up to these highest heights. I don't know that he would have said that he himself beheld the one because the one that, because the noetic realm itself is beyond human cognition. So that you may very, the soul may very well experience it, but you as a human may not which does pose all sorts of interesting questions, but again, I'm a sure. Linus guy, so I'm not going to try to answer them. <laughs> um, and it's, it's sort of interesting because Porphyry at some point actually sort of talks about this and, and suggests that, you know, you could experience the, the noetic, noetic realm. Uh, and I'm pretty sure his teacher would have disagreed with him. And I'm pretty sure everyone after him disagreed with him. Uh, but I don't know how, adamant he was on that if it was like a one-off that made sense in what he was writing about at, at the time and maybe didn't get applied to, to other things yeah because the uh you know the perennial philosophy um which we know of and know and love um kind of implies that there is an experience that is a kind of a unity with the one that one's being can have. And I'm wondering if these people back there, you know, Proclus and Iamblichus and Plotinus and everybody else, I wonder if any of them claimed any of that, or was that not a concept? They always saw themselves as individuals who had to contact an external God or daemon or something. Okay, so this is actually kind of interesting if, 
you know, you're a geek like I am about these <laughs> things. Um, that Iambulus and Proclus had these views about the nature of the one and our relationship to them that are sort of basically opposite uh, of, of each other. Um, at least according to uh, uh, Dr. Edward Butler, because he's done a ton of work uh, in, in Proclus, much of which goes right over my head. Um, that for Proclus, the one is first and panoply comes afterwards. So he talks about the, the, the gods as, as henads. Um, and before they are individual gods, they are this one beyond all those things. And the Amicus seems to be exactly the opposite. Um, he seems to really be, we are individuals first, but then move into unity with other souls of our, of our own nature, of other of the gods of our own nature, and up to the one. Um, both the Amblichus and Proclus and, and later Platonists um, had notions of uh, theosis and henosis, meaning becoming divine and becoming one with uh, the divine uh, to varying degrees. Um, was it all experiential or, or, or all just theoretical, you know, just words and logic and so forth, I wonder? Yes. Can we ever know? <laughs> <laughs> I think absolutely yes. Um, I, it, it, it is sort of interesting because he says that, you know, knowledge is, knowledge is not theurgy, but knowledge is requisite for theurgy. So you have to sort of be able to do the philosophy before you can experience the reality that's behind the philosophy. You know, there is some level that the human mind can experience theosis and henosis. Maybe not all the way up to the one, all the way up to the highest realms. There's a point where the human mind sort of leads off and the soul travels onward without it but there is still human experience going on. Yes, interesting. You know, um, the New Thought people, you know, 19th century, early 20th century, and actually to the present day, have kind of a form of theurgy. Um, in uh, Christian science, religious science, have uh, what they call um, treatments. And I know in religious science, they say there's nothing but the one. And, you know, the one is uh, all good. See, there's a Plotinus and, uh, you know, Plato, Neoplatonism type of thing there. And they heal by saying, you know, it's all good and we can see the good and the good is just, uh, the bad is just the, um, uh, the, the absence of good. And by recognizing this, it's supposed to be able to do healing. Have you ever heard of that? And do you think it's like theurgy? I have not um, heard of it. Um, not my area of, of study. Uh, the thing about evil is sort of fascinating because that's like straight up uh, Aristotle um, and then Proclus builds on that and then Pseudo-Dionysius cribs from Proclus uh, <laughs> and and then, uh, you know, there are these generations uh, of, of Christian uh, theologians who then crib from, from Pseudo-Dionysius. Um, I don't know that I, and this is me being entirely ignorant of how these treatments 
actually go go on um, if it's just speaking and say like, these sort of affirmations. I don't know that I would qualify that as as theurgy. Um, there is always a ritual component uh, in theurgy. There's always this uh, rise, this rise attempt to rise up to the divine, uh, and in theurgic ideology, that takes place through ritual action. So. What you're describing sounds a lot more like a contemplation um, that you know Porphyria or Plotinus would have would have grokked to. Well, if if you're a practitioner, you would actually have to get yourself into the state of mind being so that you realize this, and then you would uh, say these things. It's not just something that you'd read off a paper. So that's uh, I, I was trained um, in this years years ago. I'm not as a practitioner, but, you know, everybody gets trained a little bit in it. So I think it's somewhere in between, you know, but, but it's not, there's no um, physical accoutrements or, or altars or candles or anything else like that. I think it's just people sitting in a room quietly by themselves and so forth. Yeah. I think that, that really correlates well with like platonic theory platonic contemplation. Okay. Interesting. We are at the end now of our AM Byte interview. First, I'd like to say, Vance, thanks for uh, keeping us company as always. Oh, wonderful. I got a great gift because now I know I'm a henostic as well as a Gnostic. So <laughs> I'm going away happy. There you go. Yeah, new terms always helps. Well, AM. Jeffrey, as always, really appreciate you coming on AM Byte and good luck with your book and everything else you do. Cheers. It was great being here. Thank you. Thank you. And there you have it, you spiritual entrepreneurs. The first part of our interview with Jeffrey. We got more and it gets even better. In our second part, Jeffrey talks about the Neoplatonic spiritual tech called Hanosis. Is Hanosis better than Gnosis? He'll also discuss how later Neoplatonists dealt with the problem of evil and what were some of the reasons Plotinus and the Gnostics locked horns so dang much? Jeffrey will ponder if academia is finally giving Neoplatonism its due after relegating it to a woo-woo thing for so long. We'll talk about Neoplatonic theme movies and TV shows. Then Jeffrey will share on Neoplatonic concepts like beauty and others. And much more. If you find value in this content in Aeon Byte, please subscribe and you'll get this and all interviews in their entirety. Only $6.99 a lunar cycle or whatever you want to pledge on Patreon. Or you can now subscribe to the easy to use private RSS feed from Red Circle. No matter where you subscribe, it will cost you about a buck per episode. And that's a deal of many lifetimes. Membership to AV Prime or Patreon mid-levels includes full access to more than 500 quality shows. You'll get an invitation to the Inner Sanctum of Gnosis Facebook group and my Discord channel. Even support in the form of some shekel donations to PayPal or the US mail really, really helps. 
There is also a link on the show notes if you want to donate via Stripe now. A tip, if you would. I also have the merch store and an Amazon wish list if you want to help there. Finding Hermes is going strong and so are our virtual Alexandria exclusive private meetings that include exercises loyal to the ancient Gnostics and a monthly intimate Q&A. If you want to understand and experience Gnosticism in its full impact and liberating secrets, become an official citizen of the virtual Alexandria. We've recently done presentations on Gnostic astral ascents, ancient vial magic, the secrets of the serpent Gnostics, and sex magic and Alexandrian Gnosticism. Quite a variety, eh? And you'll have access to all these presentations. Whew! I know that's a lot, but I gotta stay spread out, as the Archons are always there to cancel my ass. I'm also on Rockfin if crypto is your bag. If you need help with all these choices, just message me. I'm always here to help, and I truly appreciate your help. Thanks for being here. Thanks for being yourself, your true self, here in the desert of the real. Hello and goodbye, as always. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Cashback is not available on gas in New Jersey and Wisconsin. Hey, good morning. You're heading to the airport, right? Yeah, thanks for checking. I like the car. How long have you been a rideshare driver? About three years now. I really enjoy it. Isn't it hard to make money these days with the price of gas being so high? Not for me. I use Upside, the free app that gives you cash back for every gallon of gas you buy. Wait a minute. Are you saying you actually get real money back when you get gas with the Upside app? Yep, I get real cash back every time I get gas. Does that actually add up to anything? I'll make around 200 to $300. Wow, that's serious extra cash. I'm downloading the Upside app now. Download the free Upside app now to earn real cash back every time you buy gas. Use promo code CAR for an extra 25 cents a gallon bonus on your first tank. You can cash out anytime right to your bank account, PayPal, or a gift card for Amazon and other brands. Just download the free Upside app and use promo code CAR for a 25 cents a gallon bonus on your first tank. That's code CAR.